Well, you can always edit out the bad bits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there'll be lots of bad bits. So, uh, uh, hello, it's Father Timothy. Um, this is a special episode of uh, the Gift uh, Podcast, and with me is Professor Roy Robson from Penn State. Now. For those listeners who are not very good on the American geography, tell me where Penn State is. So I work in the sort of, sort of filial college of Penn State. It's a local college uh, just outside of Philadelphia called Abington, Pennsylvania, with mm. a T, not a D, as in around here. Um, but Penn State is, itself, the main part of the university, is right smack in the middle of uh, the state of Pennsylvania. So it is as rural as humanly possible. It is a university surrounded by cow fields. Right. Um, but I live and work just outside of Philadelphia. And that's west of New York. Yes. So yep. um, the main campus of Penn State is almost directly west of, of New York, maybe a three-hour drive. And like you've traveled a million miles to this uh, tiny little chapel in the middle of Northampton town um, uh, to uh, find out a little bit about the frescoes that we have here. Uh, that were painted by uh, Joanna Reitlinger in 1947. But uh, before we talk about the detail of that, tell me what your first impressions were coming into Northampton and into uh, this chapel. Well, Northampton I knew nothing of. Um, I had never been in this part of England at all. Uh, so I've been working for a couple of days in Oxford. Um, and I left the library this morning and got on the train and hoped that I was going to get to the right place. I kept checking my phone over and over again to make sure that I was getting off and that I wasn't falling asleep. This was my big fear, that I'd sleep right through, you know, my change. <clears throat> and so it was, it was great because we got off the train. I was able to see this, you know, ancient church immediately upon coming out of the train. So and St. Peter's Church, yeah. one of our oldest churches um, in Northampton. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately not to be able to get in. Mm. And then to be able to walk in here is just a revelation because, of course, you don't expect anything. Um, you don't know what to expect. And then you sort of open up the door, you open up the little door, and then there are these amazing frescoes just here. <laughs> and we have this fresco. So uh, St. Anne's is a new parish. It's six years old. And we have quite a modern building, probably a 1930s cottage, it looks like, from yeah. the outside. Uh, and uh, most people drive past it without even noticing. And But when they do come in, uh, they come into the narthex, which is just like someone's kitchen, really, and right. uh, and then into this back room that is uh, what kind of you know, 40, 50 feet square, something like that. And on all of the walls uh, around are these quite extraordinary frescoes that were uh, painted by uh, almost a unique uh, individual, Joanna Reitlinger, sister Joanna Reitlinger, but also uniquely made yes. and uniquely artistic uh, in their structure and their design and what their content is and stuff like that. And this is uh, for a historian of uh, church uh, of Orthodox Christianity, but also a historian of iconography. This is quite strange to you, not what you expected. No, nothing is, ex is what I expected. Neither the size nor um, the decisions that she made about what to paint, how she painted it, uh, what she painted on, the kind of colors she used, the kind of brushwork she used, um, the decisions that she made about whom to put where, everything is new to me. Um, and everything has some sort of a background in traditional iconography, but um, with very few exceptions, uh, the icons on the iconostasis being the most traditional, but even they have some really 
fascinating things working with color and working with form that I've never seen, <coughs> excuse me, um, done before. Uh, but those pale compared to the stuff that's in the altar and then on the sides, and then the pieces that are not yet up, um, just get more and more bizarre, but in a truly wonderful way. I mean, I, I don't mean bizarre bad. I mean, unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. And so when you're looking at them, you can see um, the world that she came out of so completely, you know, because here she was, this woman who was working in a form of art that was not always male, but would tended to be male um, in Russia, especially. And you can see the influence of her mentors. You can see the influence of the people that she worked with, but not closely with. You can see the influence of modern artists, especially Russian modern artists like Dmitris Delietsky, that I would have not expected to see. Um, you can see, it, to my mind, even the way that she thought of this in, and again, I don't mean this in any negative way, in almost theatrical sense, mm. that she was doing this as a backdrop for the, um, again, it's not theater, the liturgy, but yet it is... Uh, um, it's dramatic, it is, it's isn't a, it? It's, yes. a, it's a divine drama oh, yes. that is happening, right? Yeah. And so there's a way in which she, I think, perceived of this in the same way that Stuletsky may have uh, painted for the, a backdrop for the Firebird, for example, or mm. something like that, for a Stravinsky work, this you know really interesting commentary on Russian tradition, but from a very modern idiom and with a very modern way of looking at it, um, it's much more beautiful than I expected it to be. It's much more um, unusual than I ever thought. And then also to look and see, I'm sort of looking around the room as, I'm, as we're sitting here, to see the choices that she made that must have had a representation of uh, things that she was reading about in the news. Yeah. So uh, this panel that we're looking at, just to, to my left, to your right, um, we were laughing that it, it has what looks like a sickle as opposed to no hammer, but a sickle. Um, and this, of course, she just finished, they just finished the end of the war, but then that rather looks like the Arc de Triomphe, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and I hadn't noticed that until just now. And it's re repeated again on the uh, other panel. Uh, these panels that we've yes. got on the floor yeah. are not in any order at the moment because right. we were still in the process of putting up. So they appear in two registers. We have the saints of around the world. Uh, in the first register at the ground and then the, the upper register, probably more extraordinary, more challenging uh, theologically, artistically and iconographically uh, are the uh, church triumphant from uh, the waters uh, above creation right the way through to uh, St. John of the Revelation. Right. Um, and of course, the, the, the modernism for her uh, painting uh, and doing her work at the end of the Second World War uh, just at the time of the nuclear bomb uh, in Hiroshima, the uh, emergence of the new nuclear age. Uh, there's extraordinary echoes, isn't there, in, in the way, her choice uh, uh, of uh, the material that she uses. Mm -hmm. Even uh, the uh, icon or the fresco of St. John of the Revelation uh, with the four men of the uh, horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, for those not familiar with Orthodox tr tradition, we don't even... Uh, speak, we don't even proclaim uh, from the book of Revelation now to the Bible in our services. So it's a, it's a part, a book of, a, uh, of our Bible, part of our canon, our tradition, but it's very rarely used. Um, certainly, I've never seen it in a fresco. No, absolutely not, never. And, and 
interesting too because it's a way I think of her talking about the possibility of these being end times, but also doing so within within the general context of orthodoxy, but willing to push borders that she otherwise wouldn't. You know, my from a layman's point of view, I've always understood not using the revelation mm. um, in the liturgical services, for example, because it's such a such an intensely different kind of book, yeah. and it is a revelation of a dream. It's not a historical revelation. It's not, um, uh, you know, sort of the, like the Acts of the Apostles or something that give you sort of what happened when. Rather, it's this intensely personal yet universal dream of what does the end of the world look like? What does it mean when Christ comes back in glory? And those kind of things must have been on her mind. Yeah. Um, and I've always liked the fact that actually we didn't use it in the liturgy because it's a little bit too... Um, bizarre in some ways for my taste you know I, I as a historian i like good prayers that have a nice good historical antecedent <laughs> to it and i i start to get a little weirded out when when you start having a lot of horsemen and uh, seals and things like that and, you know, and, and they're not you know they're they're, they're horsemen with armor on right, and, uh, yeah. and the colors are dark and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, browns and reds and stuff like that and, and uh, you know we've uh, in saint anne's we've tried to represent uh, this set of frescoes are all on bits of tea chest and uh, they're all made with uh, uh, what might be uh, ground traditional ground uh, paintwork but uh, possibly mixes of acrylics and other uh, other materials yeah she certainly um, works up these um, on some of these you see uh, working up of layering mm. not in the traditional sense of iconography but much more in the western sense of oil painting where you have this tactile almost three-dimensional sense to it that is very rare Yes, when oh when God. these are in their right place and they're kind of fifteen feet in the in the air, I'd want to still be able to reach out yes. and touch them. Yeah, and one doesn't normally touch icons, but they are so tactile. Yeah. Uh, the materials they're made on, you can still see the uh, warp and weft of the uh, uh, of the plywood uh, underneath, and then layers of paint, which you just, if it is made with ordinary, uh, normal uh, icon icon paints, which are ground stone and ground uh, powdered stone, that's a, almost impossible to achieve yeah, so right, right. how she did that yeah. is a, a question around that. absolutely um, and when we go into the chapel we have uh, uh, above us uh, this uh, fresco uh, and i'm using the word fresco and i've been told not to because technically this is a seco she's painting right. uh, dry onto a dry surface right. rather than onto a wet uh, but it's in the fresco style, so it's designed to look as if it's been painted directly onto wet plaster. Right. Uh, and hovering above us, just above the iconostas, is this again extraordinary uh, icon of uh, first one panel and two icons or two pictures. Uh, one of which is uh, uh, Eve being drawn out of Adam's rib by the Trinity, uh, by three angels, uh, and then to the right of it, this unbelievable um, uh, um, Jesus uh, Christ in the Garden of Eden uh, with dromedaries and crocodiles and eels in the river uh, but also describe because I'm not an artist describe to me what he's how he's standing and how well, it's, this it is, is not an icon is right, it right right well yeah of course in a way it is but it's unlike any I've ever seen certainly so she's doing I'm looking at it right now as we're talking and part of what's interesting on the right side, on the on the side of the creation of the animals or the naming of the animals, is um, Christ, very clearly Christ, um, not a dove, not 
uh, sort of old man God the Father without question. This is Christ set up in, in a traditional way. Um, but in some ways, like um, every once in a while you'll see an icon of Christ creating the world in which Christ is out in the cosmos and you see sort of planets and things mm. being being painted around, you know, that were painted as being smaller than him. And it has that same sense of this, this huge figure of Christ with these, you know, very large feet, for example, very real looking feet, not not like saints' feet that just have pretty little, you know, pads on their feet, but very real looking physical feet, but bigger than the uh, river, bigger than the camel, bigger than the trees. So there is this sense of creation that is really, really strong in it, but I've never seen any iconographer um, look at the creation in this way uh, of, of having these small animals sort of coming out of the ground. Um, we were talking about it earlier. It reminded me of another iconographer uh, whom I study, and he, he was quite taken by um, Raphael's picturing of the, of, the, of the animals coming out of the ground, and I wonder if she had some sort of interest in that too. It's, un, it's part of the Genesis story that we often kind of jump over, we, mm. don't, we don't really talk about. And then on the left side, the icon of Eve being created out of Adam's rib, unlike anything I've ever seen. Mm. Absolutely unique in, to my knowledge, and I've spent a good deal of time looking at icons, <laughs> and I've never seen anything like okay. it. And um, it's almost magical in its way. It's not, uh, it's flat. In it's, it's a dream like in it's, it's, Yes, that's dreamy, a better way to put it. It's yeah. more like a dream reality yeah. than, than not. But that also makes some sense when you think about the, the opposite wall as you have it, yeah. and the sort of um, presentation of the dream of St. John in Revelation. In both of these cases, sort of the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega, are done in this almost dreamlike sequence that hadn't occurred to me until just now when we were looking at them. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was thinking as we were talking about the uh, Jesus in the Garden of Eden, he's kind of uh, striding across creation. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he steps, he's stepping across the river, but yeah. actually, He's more than striding; he's dancing almost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Kind of, there's a, there's a dance move in there, so for someone yeah. to identify that I don't recognise, because there's enormous movement for his hand. Yeah, and you see that with the, and the and the birds above him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting stuff, and and especially putting him into the Garden of Eden with the cross and his halo. Um, all of the things, you know, all of the sort of traditional forms of Christ are there. Uh, and, and but this this movement in this sort of it's a blessing, but it is mm -hmm. there's a dance sort of sentiment to it, and how that works on the on the left side, there's no real break in between. There's no sort of piece of wood or anything in between. Both they you would expect them to be two panels. They're not right. they're one panel. Yeah. Um, but there's also no real transition. They just sort of are sitting side by side, side in this very fascinating way. So we're getting really excited about how extraordinary how different these icons are. I'm sure there's some listeners thinking, gosh, this is a bit worrying in terms of iconography and church decoration and uh, and you know the experimentation, the innovation are, are two words that are not necessarily comfortable within the uh, Orthodox world. <laughs> so uh, so how, how does this connect? Because you know we're talking about an extraordinary iconographer who's not on her own, and Joanna Reitlinger, uh, in this Paris milieu at the end of the Second World War. Um, uh, extraordinary theologians like Sergei Balgarkov around her, uh, other iconographers like Krug uh, influencing her, and she, uh, 
but she's also very slightly connecting to the Russian tradition because, of course, we're also talking about the height of the Soviet, uh, emergence of the Soviet state here. So iconography, uh, icons were almost totally unknown, black and white photographs in the West. And, and Joanna Reitlinger visits the, an exhibition of the Soviet state in Paris and sees these traditional icons uh, from the Russian, by tradition, maybe 19th century icons, not necessarily. Well, they, I think that tradition. I think that show they 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 brought some some Rubioffia out. I think they brought out some 15th and 16th century right. stuff too. Yeah. Um, so she could have seen some of that tradition. Without question. Yeah. Uh, but how does she then connect to uh, the people that you've been ex uh, exploring and, and and researching that kind of wider connection to the USA and to uh, other parts of kind of Western world emerging in after the Second World yeah, War. it's it's. I, I wish, but I knew more, and I'm not mm. yet sure. Um, part of what she's doing is completely within the Russian tradition. So, for example, if you're, I'm looking now at the um, a set of icons of the Russian saints, and there, it's a set of icons that are a set of saints together that I would have not expected to see together. Mm. But that's within the tradition that when you are painting for uh, a certain time or a certain place you fit the saints that make sense, that are telling the story you want to tell. Um, so within that sense, it's completely within the canon to do that. It's not strange at all. Uh, and some of her choices are, are very interesting. Um, of course, there's Vladimir, you know, the, the baptism of, of Rus, but then right next to him, sort of coming from old to new, is uh, St. Philip, who is a, a character, a, a saint that I've studied quite a bit over the years. Um, he was an interesting man because he was brought from the island monastery of Solovetsky of Soloki to Moscow by uh, Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, and was best known for standing up to him and sort of speaking truth to power, mm. for which he was killed. Uh, he was murdered by one of um, Ivan Grozny's henchmen. Um, and so that decision to put St. Philip there, who was known but not one of the most famous Russian not saints. Like, not, yeah, yeah, not a representative of the Russian tradition. Right, the, right. Uh, the St. Sergius and St. Albans uh, Fellowship, the Anglican or Orthodox Fellowship uh, established in the 1920s that owned these frescoes clearly commissioned them and they must have been some sort of decision about who's right. here and who's not. Right. You can't paint every saint. So they are representing uh, you know, saints of Russia, saints of Great Britain, saints of uh, Western Europe and of uh, the Mid and Far East. Uh, uh, but someone's got to make a choice about who's there and who's not. He's not an unusual one right. to put in here. And so you wonder, yeah. for example, is this her or their decision? Um, remember that the Russian Orthodox Church had just gone through this rapprochement starting in 43-44 with Stalin. Mm. Stalin was still alive when she was painting these icons. And so is this her way of reminding us that the Russian Church should be um, speaking truth to power rather than becoming a little too close Just, yeah. uh, to, to Soviet power? I don't know, um, but it's an interesting observation and, and unusual that he would she would have picked that particular saint. I don't know how else to interpret yeah. that saint being here. Um, uh, it's very unusual in, in, in that sense. Um, she also has is very careful to use um, women saints as well as men saints. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that it's a 50-50 mix, but it's pretty close. I haven't counted, but it's pretty um, close, yeah. Uh, and I Bridget of Sweden. Very, yeah. 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 Um, and the same thing when she's picking the saints of, of 
of the British Isles, uh, that's fascinating too. Why she did, whom she did, and who she left out, who she. So, is, for example, is is Patrick is there? Yeah. Um, and Columbine is right. Or Columbine is there. Columbine, um, yeah. And Saint, and I can never say her name correctly. Uh, Fridays Wide, Oxford, which, which I guess because the, the, the fellowship was based was in Oxford. In Oxford. And from, so that makes yeah, perfect yeah. sense too. Um, but uh, like I might have expected to see um, Augustine there, yeah. uh, who's Canterbury, who's, yeah. who's not yeah. there. Um, so Chad is, uh, of Litchfield is there, though his, uh, the, the word Litchfield has been painted over, hidden behind his, uh, uh, his cathedral. Oh, that's right. You can right. see that CH yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, but, this is a great thing too, having the, having the cathedrals of the saints behind them instead of in miniature being held by their hands. Yeah. Um, it seems to me makes a lot of sense with, within the English context that uh, an English believer walking in would find this very comfortable. Yes, in so many ways. and easily recognizable. Right. That you've got, you know, the Hagia Sophia of Constantinople, and you've got, you know, the cathedrals easily recognizable. Right. Yeah, and exactly. so let's wind up, I think, uh, because I'm sure there'll be lots more we can talk about. But I want to come back to those two icons on the iconostasis, because I think they're probably the more conservative in, in, in that respect, uh, that they are much more straight mainstream uh, icons that one might expect. But you've spotted something that, uh, again, is something quite beautiful and extraordinary about that. Yeah. Well, there are a number of things that are, that are remarkable about mm. them. But um, one is the use of color is even though within a completely traditional icon, iconographic form, uh, the use of color on Christ's, um, that orange-red on Christ's robes, is very unusual. Mm. Um, the blue is a little bit unusual, not unusual to have blue, but the, the exact blue is a little bit unusual in the Theotokos' robes. It looks um, like it's faded, but I, I'm not sure that it's faded. I don't know I that it is. I think it was it painted the way, yeah. that's the, the way it was painted. And, and, the, and when you go from Christ being a child to being an adult, the the, uh, um, the colors get considerably bolder. I'm mm. not sure what that means. Um, but I'm also taken with the um, the hand, the way Christ is making a blessing in both in both icons because it's done in the pre-1650 tradition, so the old believer tradition, uh, where there's um, holding three fingers together and then two fingers sort of almost straight up. Um, that's not the Greek blessing, but it's the blessing that was made in the pre-1650 Russian church, both by the believers and by the priests. So mm. there's no difference in how a believer or a priest would would bless himself or bless the congregation. So it's a lay uh, blessing um, as well as potentially a priestly uh, blessing. Absolutely, and, or an Episcopal yeah. blessing. And, um, they would have yeah. held their hands exactly yeah. the same way. Um, so it's this very old Russian, old what we would call an old believer tradition. Mm. But at the same time, uh, especially in the, the Christ Pentecrator, um, he's holding up a book that is, and, and it's in English, it's not in Church Slavonic, which would typically have been done by an old believer um, iconographer, would not usually have, have painted that in English. It's not impossible, but it was extremely unusual, even for that time. Yeah. Uh, so you have, again, these subtle changes that, that she's doing, reminders in many ways of tradition, but also uh, subtle additions or subtle changes that were done for her audience, that she, and she understood that this would help them in a way, in a spiritual way, that maybe having something in Greek or Slavonic or Arabic or something mm -hmm. would not have done. So it's a gift in a way, isn't it, to, yes. to the believers that she knew were going to be seeing these things. So on the one hand, she's bringing them in with things that are quite traditional, but on the other hand, um, 
playing with those traditions. But you can also, I think, see it the other way, too, in that if you were coming into this church and didn't know the Russian tradition, but did know who um, the great, some of the great uh, 20th century painters were, mm. you could come in and say, oh, you know, that's like a Chagall. Yeah, I can see had, the influence we've of Chagall. had people come in and go, oh, yeah. yes, it looks, I have no idea what it says or what it's doing, but right. it looks like a Chagall painting. So, and then, but yeah. then, so she's inviting two different groups of people yeah. to, to, to come to the, uh, uh, the table in that way, isn't she? Because she's inviting people who would know the tradition very well mm. and then helping them to expand their boundaries a little bit. And then she's also inviting people who are completely outside the tradition and much more at home with modernism and then inviting them to uh, expand their boundaries a little bit, but through the vehicle of tradition. So it's, it's really a lovely idea, isn't it? That's an absolute gift. And Professor Roy Robson, for, uh, thank you so much. It's such a joy to see you. I'm sure, I really hope that we get the opportunity to do a lot more to talking oh gosh, about this, this so much um, fun. Yeah. Uh, and a lot more research. So thank you oh, so much. Thank you.